Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, I've run out of jokes. All right. I mean, that's good news for me. Not some great, not so great news for everybody else out there. But I mean, it sounds to me like we're yeah. gonna have a great episode. So I will take the victory in that. But you know, okay. last time you also said you ran out of jokes. You weren't out of jokes, so I'm not holding my breath. Oh, okay. I'm not. I just have learned my lesson to expect the unexpected. <laughs> but even still, I have never been able to expect the unexpected. You're just too. You got way too much wit, Derek, for your own good. Right. It's a blessing oh. and a curse. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, we shall indeed. Anyway, um, let's see. We, we we got a bit to talk about today, so we're going to try to be as concise as we can with the uh, with the uh, "Come Follow Me" content because uh, mm-hmm. we got some other things we want to address. But before we go ahead and go into that. I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Genesis 24 through 27 today. The primary story that we're going to be looking at is, um, you know, the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca, in addition to mm-hmm. the conflict of Jacob and Esau and the subsequent uh, deception of Isaac, or sorry, of Isaac and Esau by Jacob and Rebecca. So, my primary question today is what are we to make? of Rebecca and Jacob's deceptions. There are, um, I mean, there might be some other questions we want to uh, acknowledge today, but uh, yeah, those were my, those were my primary questions. And to begin, there are multiple themes that we discussed at the beginning of the year that are, that are seen in these uh, four chapters namely the uh, refugee father and Isaac, the barren mother and Rebecca, the mm-hmm. subversion of the firstborn with Jacob supplanting Esau, not once but twice by deceit, and uh, his brother, and the, you know, deceit of his father and brother, and between his escape and his death, we're going to see this return to him at least twice. Um, and when we start asking ourselves the question as to whether or not Jacob's deceit was necessary or okay. Several parts mm-hmm. of this story are are going to make us wonder, and that's been a big theme of these stories of the patriarchs. They are they are clearly flawed individuals and complicated individuals, as are the rest of their families. None of their stories are clean cut. None of them are without conflict or messiness. There there's a lot of gray area in their mm-hmm. stories a lot of it and we've already we've already seen a lot of that and we're going to see a lot more of it and i want to i want to invite folks to just kind of uh sit with that the the moral ambiguity in our sacred text the messiness in our sacred text of the patriarchs and their families and by extension extension the messiness of jesus's origin story the mm-hmm. complexity of these people's characters and their very very uh humanness 
I, I think there's a couple of reasons that we are going to want to sit with that. One is because we are so accustomed to cleanliness in our sacred texts and like these neat, uh, perfect uh, images of families and how they ought to be. But uh, one mm-hmm. thing that I've noticed, mm-hmm. one thing that I've noticed, especially after, you know, some significant life events that I've had is that, you know, when I go to church, the majority, well, I'm not going to say the majority, but it's felt like half of the families that I went to church with were not perfect, were not clean cut, were not, you know, the ideal uh, image of the traditional family that we typically talk about with father and mother and children. Every, everybody's gotten mess. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. when we when we talk about the patriarchs or these, uh, you know, these complicated origin stories that we find in the Hebrew Bible, we often are, um, you know, want to forget that. And it makes us uncomfortable. We don't even want to talk about it when we're confronted with it. I was just talking to a member of uh, my bishopric yesterday at church, and he was telling me that him and his family and their family scripture study mm-hmm. just skipped Genesis chapter 19. And for those of you who are mm-hmm. not familiar, Genesis chapter 19 is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the questionable origin of Moab and Ammon, uh, the inhospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah. He just skipped over that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess he's got young kids. He may have his own reasons for doing that. I don't want to judge too much, but like, he's not the only person that thinks like that. There are other people who have to, uh, you know, wrestle with these imperfections in the text, with these scandals in the text, and they may become uncomfortable to the point where they just don't talk about them in their families because it, like, it's too disruptive. It's too uncomfortable. And I think that, yeah, I think that's worth sitting with and discussing. I think it's, we've got a cultural problem in our tradition. And uh, for me, it's almost the inverse of what I see in many streams of Judaism where, Um, Our Jewish siblings have wrestled deeply with the text, literally for thousands of years, from every possible angle, and really trying to squeeze out every juice of literally every letter of the Hebrew text, and wrestling with all these things. I think Latter-day Saints want to roll up to Burger King and get a fast food meal, right? Um, I don't know if my analogy makes much sense, but let me spill it out this way, like actually getting a good meaning out of the Bible in a responsible way takes work. And a lot of Latter-day Saints don't want to do the work. They want to have an easily digestible, your way right away, like snappy little spiritual thought that you can get easily without doing a lot of work. And I think some of our manuals even encourage this. Like when you Mm -hmm. go into the manual, which I don't, by the way, listeners out there, I don't even really look at the manual before I record before I teach, before I whatever. I probably should just so I know what everyone else is going to get hit with and I can anticipate that and respond to problems. But I did this week. I'm like... uh, (laughs) Did you notice what the first heading was? Well, I don't remember. It was something about marriage. It was basically... It's like, oh, look. They got a heterosexual marriage. Yay for them. Is is that what you got out of this text? Yeah, I said the same thing. (laughs) Like, Isaac... Um, Abraham went and found and, and had his servant find a wife for Isaac and Rebecca. I'm like, yay, Isaac and Rebecca got a straight marriage. Marriage is ordained of God. Marriage is good. Marriage is like that is we have a very deep and rich, complex text. And all you got out of it was people got married. Right. Like people always get married. Mm-hmm. Like 
in every generation there's people that get married. I don't I don't see why why there's there's a other than just to get an easy um, proof text out of there like oh it's important for you to choose your mate from the covenant people rather than from the Canaanites of the land and then and then uh, put that today or it's important for you to have a marriage or else you won't be part of the covenant people or it's important for you to have a heterosexual marriage like what are you mm-hmm. getting out of this and I think what it does is speaks to the fundamental insecurity of the people who write the handbook they're insecure and they have to squeeze out some meaning about damaging the gays even here in uh in like oh you got to have a heterosexual marriage with someone in the covenant people like that's what you got like we've got this complex rich text that has been uh, formative for a number of peoples and a number of religions for thousands of years and now you want to score points about marriage mm-hmm. right is that oh well anyway um and i think that's how our people are trained to read the text. Mm-hmm. That's how many people read the text in general conference. It's, it's like, oh, I'm just going to take this and get a, sh- a short, snippy message. Now, I don't want to minimize likening the scriptures unto yourself, mm-hmm. which you can take a message and get a little bit different, something different from it than what was the original intended meaning of the community that produced the text. But that takes work and discernment and thought and experience and communion with the Spirit, like having a responsible likening of the Scriptures unto yourself, that takes work too. That takes um, a lot more work than people want to give it. And I think a lot of Latter-day Saints want to... I shouldn't really dump on our people that way, but I just want to warn people that there's something better here for us. No, I agree with that statement. And, uh, you know, I do look at the Come Follow Me uh, lesson every week just to see what the church handbook wants us to get out of the text. And I was a little bit dumbfounded to see that, to see that be one of the first headings is, you know, them taking another opportunity, another opportunity to use Isaac and Rebecca's story, which is, you know, I think the longest in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible for them to in essence say, look, marriage is between a man and a woman. And I'm just like, that is, I I don't know what the right I don't know what the right word to use is, but it just felt lazy. It felt, um, it, it, yeah, it just felt kind of lazy to me. I, I really didn't like it. And there's a lot more in this text, a lot more in this lesson for us to uh, get out. I really, I do appreciate that they uh, took time to focus on the uh, servant of Abraham and talk about the servant's faithfulness. Like that was great. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I just felt like uh, that part was lazy. And I felt like there was a... Oh, and one more thing yeah. that the manual did that I really liked was talk about, like, actually dedicate a section to was Rebecca and Jacob wrong? Like, were they wrong for their deception? And I was like, that is a better question to ask. And I was, uh, I was grateful for that much. And before I forget, I wanted to ask what other questions uh, you had from the text uh, during your reading this week, Derek. Yeah, that is a that is a question. One of the questions that entangles both of these topics already is to what extent should we imitate the patriarchs and matriarchs of mm-hmm. Genesis? And my answer is we probably shouldn't do it at all, right? Like, do we really look look at Abraham and Sarah? Look at Isaac and Rebecca. Look at Jacob and Esau. Look at you know the Joseph uh, and his brothers. Like. There really isn't anything that we're, we should copy and paste. 
like we can learn from it. Right. But I don't think holding any of them up as examples for today of what we should do. Um, or like remember Lot and his wife or his daughters. Like these these texts are not designed to be heroes that, oh, look, we should be, be like. And I think there's a lot of that happening. Like we're supposed to look up to Noah. Well, he made some big mistakes. We should look up to Abraham. We should look up to all these heroes. And the scriptures record the flaws they record the tragedies they record all this i think in order that we might not idolize them and might not engage in like oh this hero worship type thing where where they're um some great even king david i mean there's a lot of aspiring to be like him and he he got some mess wrong he got um, a lot wrong yeah so so that's kind of what I want to do. So I want to resist the temptation to Disneyfy the text in the sense of Disney makes, you know, you watch Disney and it pre-establishes for you your opinion about the characters. It tells you who the good guys and the bad guys are and you don't really get to choose. Mm-hmm. And I think the the real rich characterization we have here in Genesis is that, the, that these people aren't all good and they're all ba- and they aren't all bad. Right? Um, there's even co- complexity with Lot's wife, yeah. right? There's like, what was she doing with Lot's daughters? What were they doing? Like, it's not, it's not this easy, uh, conviction or acquittal that you can just put on them. And I think we want to tie everything up in a nice, neat bow. And I think for me today, the question of whether their deception was justified or not, I mean, I'm talking about Rebecca and, uh, Jacob, I'm just going to withhold judgment because, I don't want to come down today on one side or the other because there's, it's complex and there's problems with both sides, mm-hmm. and I just want to leave room for conversation. Absolutely. Um, I know for myself, I definitely want to kind of uh, acknowledge the well, one more thing worth mentioning, especially after reading uh, Rebecca's story, is that we have consistently seen women taking very significant roles in these stories, making very mm-hmm. consequential decisions in the uh, narratives they're receiving revelations and they're even speaking with god and receiving promises from god we saw this with rebecca too who like uh who like sarah and hagar didn't have much of a voice when we were initially when we initially got introduced to her but she still plays a significant role in how the next major story unfolds she takes initiative like sarah and hagar she's found in a very difficult position uh, like Sarah and Hagar, and also receives revelation like Sarah and Hagar. We also see similarities between mm-hmm. Rebecca and Abraham when we initially meet her, uh, mm-hmm. particularly her above and beyond hospitality towards Abraham's servant, uh, a stranger to her. And I think that a parallel is kind of a big deal, especially when we consider the similarities that were drawn between the, the, the similarities that we saw between Hagar and Abraham with regard to the patriarchal promises they received. We see characteristics of the prophetic and of the quote-unquote patriarchal hero in these women uh, in the text so far. And we also see them making very difficult decisions that they don't get enough grace for. Like, we've, we've seen this since Eve, mm-hmm. and we've seen this with pretty much mm-hmm. every uh, female character in, in the text. So we're going to see those similarities. Uh, 
And we'll be asking yeah. similar questions regarding Rebecca. Like, what are we what are we to make of her role? Uh, what are we to make of the deceit? Like, like you said, is there even any place for us to make a quote unquote judgment about that? Like, I've even asked myself once I initially wrote that question out, is that even the right question? What are we supposed to do with her? And what are we supposed to do with Jacob? And ultimately, especially when we see how the rest of Jacob's story play out, when we see the rest of how the Hebrew Bible plays out, does our question change? And uh, I don't, I don't have an answer to that question. I have been able to Mm -hmm. make some measure of peace with the fact that, uh, especially after the story of Lot's daughters and also with how Jacob's story ends, we see God's ability to kind of act as a divine GPS where they recalculate, not necessarily fix the story or fix the wrong, the, the wrongs, mm-hmm. but they recalculate in such a way that what is supposed to come out in the end does eventually come out in the end. Despite a questionable lineage, we still were able to get Jesus, a descendant of David, with who has a questionable history, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a descendant of Moab. You know, all of that, you know, all of that questionable backstory, all of that questionable history, all these quote unquote women who had to make difficult decisions or these women of ill repute in Jesus's lineage, and we were still able to get Jesus. So I feel like there's a lesson there, but, uh, you know, I want to speak carefully about that when we come into this story where there is a lot of drama, there is a lot of, uh, you know, deceit. And I I don't quite know what, I haven't figured out quite what to do with that, but I was able to take some comfort in how these stories end and what God is still able to do in spite of these, Mm. uh, in spite of these quote unquote problems. Uh, Do you have any initial thoughts about that? Yeah, and I also want to think about like how the story is framed and who gets who tells the story and who benefits from the story. And this goes back to this thing about what I'm going to call supporting characters. And I've said this before, but um you have a choice to figure out who the main character is. And I think if you read uh if you read the text carefully, you can look at Abraham's servant, the one that gets sent into uh, back to Mesopotamia to get a wife for Isaac. And he's not named in this chapter, but it appears that he could be the same as the Eliezer, uh, who's the main servant in Abraham's household in Genesis 15. So I'm going to call him Eliezer. Given Is that the, the one that uh, Abraham was afraid to have his inheritance? Okay, right. just making sure. Right, right, yeah. So it looks like it's this is Eliezer. So I want to give him a name because I want to make him a main character. And I want to make Rebecca, Isaac, Abraham, I want to make them background characters. All right. Now, why do I want to do this? Because I want to say that um, queer people are not the supporting characters in the story of straight people. We are the heroes of our own stories. And so many, so much of, of our world is constructed where human civilization equals straight people. And we're just like additional tacked on like a side plot. I don't want to be anyone's side plot. Um, I'm not a side plot, right? And I think we think about, oh, we think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what about the matriarchs? Are, do we consider them supporting characters in the story of the man? Or what about this um, enslaved individual, Eliezer? 
by the way, the, the distinction between a, a slave and a servant isn't isn't very easy to make in the ancient world. There's really just one word in Hebrew for it. Um, but what's going on here is um, there's in many cases this this dude is the is his own story. He um, actually takes initiative. He's entrusted by Abraham. Um, he takes initiative with um, even naming the terms of the oracle with God. Like he says to himself, I don't even have the text in front of me, maybe I should. But he says to himself, whichever woman, or how does it go? Hold on, let me pause and actually okay. get the text. Right. Here I found it. This is Genesis 24, 12 through 14. He prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, guide me today. Be faithful to my master Abraham. Here I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the people who live in the town are coming out to draw water. I will say to a young woman, please lower your jar so I may drink. May the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac reply, drink, and I'll give your camels water too. In this way, I will know that you have been faithful to my master. There's a, there's, this is so beautiful. I, this might be one of the the most beautiful prayers in all of scripture now that I think about it. Because here you have someone in a marginalized position calling out to God, naming God, um, naming the faithfulness of God, holding God accountable to God's promise to Abraham, and uses his position to dictate the terms of the oracle. There's a lot of uh, discernment processes in the scripture, and in many cases, the Lord says, well, here's how you will know something. Th this, this guy took it upon himself to dictate the terms to God of what God, how's God going to tell him, right? He says, here's how I will know God. Let it be this way. And the Lord does it. I think that's powerful. That needs to be a main story, especially because we on the margins um, need heroes like this to say, look, you can be on the margins, but you can still call out to God. You can still dictate the terms of your own um, and own uh, communication with God, your own information and revelation from God. And I think that is uh, quite powerful. And look how powerful it is in, in verse 15. Before he had finished praying, there came Rebecca. Look at the wonderful drama we've got here. Before he had finished praying, there came Rebecca with her water jug on her shoulder. You know? And this servant had uh, uh, sworn an oath to Abraham. Abraham was old and Abraham said to his servant, this is verse 2, uh, the senior one in his household who was in charge of everything he had, put your hand under my thigh so that I may make you solemnly promise by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, you must not acquire a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. You must mm -hmm. go instead to my country and to my relatives to find a wife for my son Isaac. Right? Is this really, why didn't, why didn't the manual get something out of that? Um, but anyway, I just want to name, and you can see this throughout the character, uh, throughout the scripture where someone who is allegedly a supporting character ends up being, uh, raised by God to be someone profound. You see this with Isaac supplanting the, uh, elder Ishmael. You see this with, mm -hmm. uh, Jacob supplanting the elder Esau, right? You see this with Gentiles supplanting Jews. You see this all over um, 
where someone where God lifts up the stone that gets rejected. And I find that powerful that in, in the Lord's eyes, uh, who you thought was a supporting character and who you thought was the main character gets flipped all around. And you've spoken mm-hmm. quite eloquently to this uh, before. But yeah, I don't know if... Uh, but I just find it so interesting that this servant has the power to bind God and mm-hmm. to set and to dictate to God the terms of this oracle that he is going to receive. I just find that beautiful. Yeah, it's great. And I'm really glad that you pointed out in verse 15 how quickly the Lord answers that prayer. Like before he even finishes answering that prayer, the Lord's got an answer. And that, yeah, like I, re- I really love that. I really do. And, uh, yeah, sure. And I think there's there's evidence there's there's ways of taking Rebecca not as a supporting character to Isaac, but as a character in her own t- t- uh, in her own right. Right? She uh-huh. even receives revelation from God. She does. Like, let's look at as you mentioned. Um, let's turn to that Genesis fifteen twenty through through twenty three. But the children. This is when she is pregnant with twins. Sorry, Genesis but fifteen. Chi- Genesis twenty five. There we go. Verses 20 through 22 through 23. All right. But the children struggled inside her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she asked the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from within you. One people will be stronger than the other, and the other one will serve the younger. And this is a very powerful um and this isn't just like personal revelation, like everyone gets personal. This is actually revelational information about the salvation of history of God's people, right? This is this is global revelation to the entire community. Mm-hmm. I think it needs, needs to be named that we have women prophets in the scriptures who can receive revelation on behalf of the whole community. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is this promise right here. You've already got the promise that Jacob, will the younger, will supplant Esau in terms of the birthright, in terms of the inheritance, and in terms of the blessing. And so Rebecca engineers that to happen through deception. Mm-hmm. Now here's my question is, well, what would have happened if she didn't do that? Did she feel yeah. like she needed to uh, accomplish God's will on uh, through human means? Or could she say, you know what, God, I... I can't deceive. I can't. There's no way around this, but we need to figure this out. God, you're going to do it and then hold God accountable to God's promises. I think that um, there's the possibility that if she had not done the deception, God would have swooped in and then God would have somehow arranged the same outcome. So that uh, I think the biggest argument in justification for her would be to say, well, she's just trying to do God's will. Right. But I'm like, and well, she was under a lot of pressure. Like, yeah, Jacob was about, or sorry, Isaac was about to give that blessing, and she must have felt like immense pressure. Be like, I got to make sure this doesn't happen the way Isaac wants it to happen. I need to make yeah. sure it happens the way the Lord told me it was going to happen. And my time is short. I got to do something. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the the times where queer people have to deceive in order to survive. Mm-hmm. That's literally the closet. And and if you're gonna blame queer people for being in the closet. Blame the one who made the closet, not the people that are trying to survive it the best they can. Right, right. Um, and here she is uh, trying to trying to figure out God's will and trying to implement God's will and doing what she needs to do. 
So I don't know. I mean, I can. I'm wrestling with both sides, and I think that's the, the good that we're that that this text gives us the um, the uh, the opportunity to to wrestle. And I think same thing with the selling of the birthright. Like that wasn't a deception, but it was taking advantage of and exploiting Esau's weakness in a moment of hunger. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna die. You have to sell me the. Uh, I'll I'll do anything right for food. Right. Um. And taking advantage of that and exploiting someone, like what do we do with that? And I think um, we can learn. You know, it bugs me. I've used this before to say, look, we as Latter Day Saints have the privilege. We have the birthright of Revelation. We are born as the Church of Continuing Revelation with Living Prophets, but we don't. We don't use it. We don't actually go to the Lord and demand blessings the way that uh, Eliezer did here. We don't go to the, well, we meaning we queers on the margins, we do, but I have no evidence that the leaders of the church are actually um, badgering the Lord like we're supposed to do. Look at the Luke 18 parable of the uh, widow and the unjust judge. Jesus tells us that's how you're supposed to pray, like annoy God into until God does the right thing, mm. right, is the... Um, one one way of taking that, um, but yeah, I, I think there's there is a way of of taking these sort of supplanter narratives and say, you know what, that's what God is going to do with queer people. God's going to take us and uh, put us in the privileged position eventually, and we can lean into that promise and hold God accountable to that promise. And speaking of that, I would just want to read just two quotations from the. Queer Bible Commentary, uh, the commentary on Genesis. Uh, the first thing I wanted to say has to do with a- Abraham sacrificing Isaac in a way um, that that sort of recapitulates how homophobic parents sacrifice their own queer kids. So here's what the uh, Queer Bible Commentary says. Quote, whether it be through donning the straitjacket of the closet or by following spurious ex-gay and reparative therapy programs or through suicide, parents offer up their queer children on the altars of homophobia. The heterosexualist society would like to believe that its queer children are fully complicit in this process, that they willingly lay their heads down on the altar and implore their parents to tie the bonds tighter so that the offering will not be marred. Close quote. And and the reference here is uh, some commentators say that Isaac was willing, that he said, uh, please tie me up so that I don't have a reflex action and and get hurt. Well, I mean, he's going to get hurt. But, uh, but if he gets hurt and injured, then he's no longer an acceptable sacrifice. Um, so basically, tie me up so that I, so that I don't... Uh, so that the sacrifice goes well and I'm, and I'm able to be killed appropriately. Um, and isn't that just an awful thing to think about? The second quote from uh, the Queer Bible Commentary is about the Jacob and Esau narrative. Here's what it says. Esau is red and hairy, an outdoors man, a hunter. Esau represents the heteronormative masculinity, the patriarchal ideal and consequently, he is loved by his father, Isaac. Esau is the man Isaac can never be, no matter how hard he tries. 
In contrast, Jacob is said to be a quiet man living in tents. As was seen in Genesis 18, the tent is the woman's space in the patriarchal order. In declaring Jacob to be a man living in tents, Genesis is questioning his masculinity. Jacob is effeminate, perhaps also his sexuality. Certainly, Rebecca, his lesbian mother, loves her femi son, and it is her role to circumvent the patriarchal order so that the straight butch, born to rule, is displaced by and therefore must defer to the swishy, delicate, pretty boy. Close quote. There's a whole bunch in there uh, that's layered in with previous material in the commentary talking about how Isaac himself was not, um, was essentially emasculated by the the binding of Isaac. And there's other ways that Isaac was gender nonconforming and he may have been um, intersex or something because of the uh, not able to have children thing. Then there's Rebecca. It talks about how Rebecca shows initiative and shows leadership and shows a lot of betrayal of the patriarchal order in the in this whole narrative because uh, of the way that she constructs her identity and how she navigates through the world is much more like men do, apparently, according to this commentator. And so that's we've got a lot of very interesting things. So a gender nonconforming Rebecca ends up supporting her gender nonconforming son to supplant the uh, the straight boy Esau. And so I resonate with that. I'm not saying that this is a, at all what the original authors were uh, meant by the text, but it's very interesting to use this as a crucible for reflection and discernment and making meaning. So much of religion is about meaning-making. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in order for us to survive on the margins, we have to have these narratives in our head of God taking those that are ignored and making them central, taking those on the margins and making us important, taking those of us who are defeated and liberating us, or at least giving us enough to survive. And then, um, yeah, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's that's the story of, of queer people. Mm-hmm. So probably that's all I have to say right now about the uh, uh, the Genesis material. All right. And I think that's all I need to say. Just for the sake of time, let's go ahead and get to what else mm-hmm. we uh, would like to speak on today so that we can just otherwise... You know, let me just get straight into this, actually, uh, just by way of... I don't know. I, I just want to say some prefatory words real quick. Yeah, uh, say some words. Yes, sir. Preach it. <laughs> so this week, we are bringing back the prayer roll just for today. But before we do, there is uh, something on my heart. Uh, it's been on my heart for the mm-hmm. last little bit. Derek and I are in the third year of this podcast, and we are a Come Follow Me podcast at our core. Uh, reading the marginalized into the Come Follow Me lessons every week has been our objective every week. And this has been to the end of showing folks that the gospel validates those on the margins. It always has. We have always been present in the text and you don't have to look far for us. We don't call people to action explicitly a lot on this show and we're perhaps needing to do that more often. 
But I did want to remind everybody that listens what exactly we're about here at Beyond the Block so that I can also remind y'all what we expect. Congregations are Mm -hmm. still hostile to the marginalized. And I think people know that. But I hope people also know that it is still our responsibility to make them less hostile. It'd be it'd be rough out here in these uh, in these Mormon streets. That hostility mm-hmm. is a big reason we created Beyond the Block, because we wanted to create a gospel-centered space that validated people like us, people who are on the margins somehow, people who don't feel seen or even feel unwelcome or unwanted because of things that they can't control while daring to take up space. In our recent conversations uh, that, you know, Derek and I have had, Even though we show up every week and we can bear confident testimony that the God of Abraham, who is also the God of Hagar, we we can bear testimony that God sees us and hears us. Even though we can do that, we still got to go to church and we still struggle from time to time. That is a a less than desirable thing that we got to deal with. And, you know, even though we do it anyway, we... One of the big reasons that we started this podcast is so that one day we don't have to do this. And one day people like us don't have to do do this. I, I tell Derek on occasion mm-hmm. that my ultimate goal for this podcast is to make it obsolete. You know, I want the... Oh, yeah. And then uh, then it will just be my joke because those are never obsolete. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, I've also joked on uh, in other venues that I, I, I ache for the day where the most where, where, where the most important issue to me is talking about why JC from NSYNC's career got stopped so early and why Justin Timberlake, despite being the lesser singer and lesser dancer, was able to have an illustrious career. Like I want to oh, wow. I want to be able to have those conversations again mm-hmm. one day. I don't I don't want to talk about this stuff all the time or talk about how we gotta like center the marginalized in Mormonism when that should have been done from the beginning, when the text always has commanded us to do that. Um I just want to remind people what what it is that we do here, why it is that we do it, and what our goal is ultimately in uh, this work that we do of, uh, you know, reading the marginalized into the text. I want to have one day a church that we go to where we don't have to feel like this space is even necessary. I want to I want to work for that church one day. And um, I just want to remind people that is what we're doing here. And my expectation is that you take what we discuss here and that you go back into your congregations and you do your darndest to make sure that uh, that space you occupy at the very least is a safe space for people who are on the margins. That is why we do what we do. That is why uh, we've started this project. Um, And I hope that uh, you're taking that with you every week. It's to that end that we are doing this work and to that end that we even have a podcast. And uh, again, I would like there to be a... I don't Mm -hmm. don't know what's going to happen after this year, guys. This is the... Uh, last year of the Come Follow Me for the uh, for the Hebrew with the with the Hebrew Bible. I don't know what things are going to look like next year. I don't know what this podcast is going to look like next year. I suspect that Beyond the Block is always going to be around mm-hmm. in some capacity or another, but I don't know what we're going to look like next year, and I don't know how our ministry is going to shift. But um, so long as this work needs to be done, 
we are going to be around in some form or fashion. And uh, so long as we're in the Mm -hmm. Come Follow Me, I just want to make sure that that much is made clear. Um, Because, you know, we do this so that other people like us can have an easier time. But uh, Derek and I are still out here. We are still, uh, you know, human beings at the end of the day who got to deal with this stuff. And we are not immune to... uh, you know, what is happening out here in these Mormon streets with regard to people on these margins. I felt a way strongly about uh, Brad Wilcox's words a couple of weeks ago, and we mm-hmm. are still dealing with the fallout of that. Um, I was writing about it in my class just uh, just this morning. Um, so, you know, this still affects us very deeply. It's, it's why we do this work. And um, just one more time to remind y'all, my expectation is that uh, y'all take the lessons that we learned from this text and what we are doing here, and ultimately do your part in making this a safe space, making this a space where we are welcome. It's why I did my anti-racism 101 course. I was doing my part in making sure that members of the church had the tools that they needed to make sure that racism does not exist in the spaces that they occupy. So Mm -hmm. that is my part, or at least one part of my part, I hope that you guys, when you listen to the podcast, you go back out there and you do your part in taking these lessons and making sure that your congregations are a safe space, too. I, I think that's all I want to say in way of prefatory words. Uh, do you want do you have anything to add, Derek, before we just. Yeah, okay. I have of two things. One is my assumption is that it's going to roll around to the New Testament again. And since we covered it already one way we might do something different we might cover it a little bit different way it might i don't know but i still want to do something because i of course the new testament is my major uh interest so I w- i'll definitely be doing something that year uh we'll see what happens the other thing is our goal in this podcast isn't that you get the right opinions in your head and 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 be done right that's only a piece of it i think the larger thing is that these right opinions in your head need to translate into action, just like James said, uh, faith without works is dead. So having the right opinions, having the right anti-racist, and people now feel free to hold me accountable. Like, I feel like I have the right anti-racist opinions in my head. Like, I've I've read and thought about these things pretty pretty consistently for seven years, but I don't have all the actions. Like, I, I don't do... I do stuff, I do stuff, but I don't do everything that I possibly could. And same thing uh, with disability or with women's issues or with um, issues of all these other other things. Like I, I roughly have the right opinions, but I probably should do more. Um, but anyway, so all of you out there, uh, especially in the local ward because that is where you can you can have the most change. You can't change what's going on in Salt Lake, but your words in the public words and your public actions in the ward or in the stake, you can actually change the experience for the queer person or for uh, the d- disabled person or for wh- whomever it is. Uh, just even a few actions can go a long way with that. Anyway, so let's talk about Wilcox, and then let's talk about another individual. Okay. Um, (laughs) I still don't know that I have anything new to say about brother our brother Wilcox. Um, You know. Well, I have something new to say. Like I've seen most people in uh, 
I'm going to start calling it expansive Mormonism rather than than progressive Mormonism because that actually it's a bit of an, does more of what I want. It's to also say. a bit of a misnomer. But go ahead. Uh, progressive or expansive is a misnomer. Uh, progressive. Uh, okay. Well, within expansive Mormonism, we've heard a lot of the same reactions to um, uh, Brad Wilcox's talk, and I I could have said a lot of all those same things too. But there's one thing that no one has said that I want to add because I've never seen any, never heard anyone analyze it this way, and I think it's analyzing the questions he's asking. And putting that in dialogue with the way Jesus asked questions. Because here's the thing. If you look at the way Jesus, uh, when he was trapped and when he was put in a tough spot, when people with power over him put him in, a, in an awful spot, he would sometimes dodged it by asking a different question. Or sometimes even if it wasn't a power, uh, the same power imbalance, people who themselves wanted to oppress. For example, um, the... Uh, the lawyer who wanted to limit the love for neighbor, he says, uh, and asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't actually answer the question, who is my neighbor? He, Jesus answered this whole thing about uh, how we should treat our neighbor mm-hmm. uh, and expanding. So there's there's ways that Jesus um, uh, takes a question and, and, and refocuses on a different question. I think the famous one of these is the, um, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And within the first century Roman-occupied uh, territory, both answers would be very wrong. Because if you say, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, you've just now um, thrown your side in with the oppressor. If you say no, well, then you've just put a target on yourself. So he had to deftly uh, go go around that. Same thing with the woman left alone with Jesus. They asked him straight up. He says... Well, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And he didn't actually say yes or no. He's he's he he diverged and he diverted it. And I think what's happening now, I just realized, is a lot of Latter Day Saint leaders, um, and I can't name all their names right now, but a lot of them have superficially noticed that this is what Jesus did, and then they started doing it themselves, right? And no one has named this, and I think. You have to look at how it functions to figure out why it's different. Because in every case, what Jesus is trying to do when he reframes the question is hold people even more accountable and expand people's understanding and get them to think more. But Brad Wilcox's reframing of the questions is actually contracting your thinking, getting you to ignore certain questions, um, not holding people accountable either before 1978 or folks now. Uh, Wilcox's whole point is to deprive people of accountability and just say, oh, don't worry about that. That's not that's actually backwards from the way Jesus did it. He invited more reflection, more intense scrutiny, expanded the questions. So I have to say that when I first read the first part of Wilcox's question out of context, um, he just said we should ask why uh why people why no one had the priesthood before 1829 and in a different context with a different power structure that's actually a a valid theological question right but it's the way it was deployed that caused the pro that caused the whole problem mm-hmm. 
And I think he was deploying it to get people to, oh, don't look under the curtain, like uh, the whole Wizard of Oz thing. And I just want to name this. Yes, it is good that if you are uh, trapped and there's people who don't deserve the answer from you, you can dodge it with a different question because that's exactly what Jesus did. People did not have the right to his uh, answers like when he said when they asked him well well by whose what authority do you have to do this he didn't answer right. them he could have but he didn't and um the thing is they didn't have a right to that answer from him but we have the right to answers from wilcox like he's out there being a leader trying to answer questions trying to he's intent he's like no one went up to him and trapped him he's out there taking the initiative to go around and try to be an answerer of these questions. And instead of answering the questions, he's trying to dodge the questions, protecting people in power, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. He he sacrificed his own power, and when, he, when there were other people with power, he challenged their power. Like, it is completely backwards, and no one has pointed this out yet that I know of. Mm. I haven't seen anybody do that, so, uh, yeah, that's... But yeah, it is it is an interesting pattern. And I think Jesus's pattern, like I think our first words out of Jesus in the whole Gospels, our first words, not first words in the text, but first words um, in Jesus's life were a question. Like in the Luke 2 narrative of the trip to the temple, uh, Jesus's parents go to him and say, didn't you know that we were worried about you? And he, and then he responds to it with a question. He says, well, didn't you know that I was going to be about my father's business? Why were you worried about me, right? He asks a question and responds to a question. So there's places for that, but you have to look at my favorite, one of my favorite theological questions is how does it function? And how does, um, how did Wilcox's questions function? They function to silence thought and silence scrutiny and to protect powerful and remove accountability he's like just don't worry about that mm-hmm. and that is is quite problematic yeah. okay so now let's now what, what was that you were going to say about wilcox i mean yeah i really don't have anything new to offer like i've said pretty much everything i've wanted to say on uh, my twitter thread i think i posted that to our uh, to our facebook page and uh, I think mm-hmm. the only thing I want to add is I'm still waiting for a proper apology from Brad Wilcox. Um, like, it's not that I don't appreciate the effort. Uh, he's done more than most uh, leaders have done in the past. Uh, however, I need to know exactly what he's going to do to make things better. What is he going to do to make sure this mistake is not repeated in the future? And most importantly, does he know what he actually did wrong? Like, he hasn't named that and he hasn't, uh, so I, I can't really take confidence in his uh, statement of intention to do better in the future. I need to know that he knows what he did was wrong. I need to know that he knows why it was problematic so that I can take confidence mm-hmm. in his ability to do better in the future. I think we need to make sure we hold him accountable to that. Um, and, you know, I'm saying this as somebody who, you know, I'm just going to say it. I do like Brad Wilcox. He had pro- he had positive things to contribute to my life as a young person, as a young adult. But like, you know, this has rattled a lot of us and, um, you know, people that like Brad Wilcox. And I expect a lot better of him. Um, so I have to believe that if Brad Wilcox is 
the person I believed him to be, that he's going to repent properly and that he is going to be able to turn this around and no one's going to really remember this because he repents properly. But I haven't seen him make an effort to do that yet. So it's my expectation. Yeah, and I I wish he would have just said the truth during his two apologies. Like his first apology was like, oh, I misspoke and, and I the words came out wrong. No, that's not my problem. My problem wasn't the phrasing of it. My problem was the power imbalance that was uh, incarnated mm-hmm. um, into this question, right? The way he was asking the question and what he was doing the question, I didn't, the phrasing wasn't my problem. You're right, it wasn't the phrasing. And you can it tell. Only, and that was even only part of the problem. It wasn't that at all. Right. It was it was the how it functions. It was like because here's the thing. If he had really been truthful about, oh, no, I just phrased it wrong. He would have said what he meant. But the thing is, we know what he meant. And it was wrong. It was wrong to say there's it's not an issue of like, oh, you just the words, which happens to me sometimes. I'll start one sentence and then my brain is moving so fast that I finish a a different Uh sentence. Right. Or I'll say the word not. And then I forgot that I had the word not in there. Like, yeah, that happens. And and sometimes I'll say something that's the opposite of what yeah. I mean. But that's not what he did. He intentionally, um, and he says this in his second apology, he used it before. He's said it before. He said it repeatedly before. And no one called him out on it, apparently. Or, or no, I think people did, and he just didn't No, nah, I did find and, out that he was actually called out by a black woman. Yeah. So. So, so he didn't change, and now he, um, he changed. Yeah. But what's what seems to be good is, wait, maybe he didn't change. I don't know. But what seems to be good is that we are holding him accountable, and now it's up to him what he's going to do with that. But at least he got the notice yeah. that what he said is wrong, and he's likely not going to say anything like that again. Yeah, let's hope it. Let's hope it stays that way. Uh, there is actually one more thing I want to uh, bring to light with uh, this whole Brad Wilcox thing. I don't know if you. Uh, like I remember watching the video and seeing like five or six other people on the stand and there's this one dude on the stand who is like visibly uncomfortable. And uh, from my understanding, he didn't do anything at the conclusion of Brad Wilcox's remarks. But um, I was reflecting on this and also on some of uh, Martin Luther King's words right after uh, right, right after John Kennedy's killing. Um, mm-hmm. He preached, uh, King did, about breaking loose from the Egypt of slavery and elsewhere, he declared that all Americans were implicated in Kennedy's killing. He uh, said something along the lines of we tolerated hate. We tolerated the sick stimulation of violence in all walks of life. And we tolerated Mm -hmm. the differential application of the law. Like that is what he said. And that called to mind another thing that I've heard you say, Derek, um, you know, about there being, you know, if there are, 10 people in a room, one person says something racist and nine others don't say anything, then you have 10 racists. Like in that way, right. like something else that Brad Wilcox highlighted because he had given this talk many times before is just how things like racism, how things like homophobia, how all kinds of bigotry are able to continue. And that's because people don't say anything. That's because the people in charge, the leaders who are present at these meetings, they don't correct Brad Wilcox. The people who are in the congregations listening to him say these things, they don't correct him. Like they don't express Mm -hmm. disapproval. Like this is a very problematic 
thing that exists within our church. Like, yeah, I want to hold Brad Wilcox accountable, but I also want to hold everybody else accountable who is in earshot of this dude, everybody else who has heard him say this and has yet to condemn his words. Mm. Like part of that is on us. We have to make sure that when these things are happening in our congregations, that we stand up to them, that we say something, that we express disapproval somehow. Because if we don't, then we are basically allowing the propagation of these bad ideas. And we can't afford Mm -hmm. to do that as people that know better. We can't afford to do that as disciples of the same Christ who declared, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. We can't afford to do that to a Christ that has told us that if we see him hungry or naked or poor or otherwise needing, and Mm -hmm. we do nothing, that we stand under condemnation. Um, you know, to, to your point earlier about uh, how Jesus answered the question about who is my neighbor, he answered that question with a parable of the Good Samaritan. And one of the lessons that we miss about the parable of the Good Samaritan is not only is it a message and a lesson on compassionate spirituality, is it is a lesson and a critique of religious passivity. And I feel like that is a trap that too many of us might fall into. Like, don't forget that the first two people to pass the pass the uh, man who was uh, had thieves mm-hmm. fall upon him, the first two were a priest and a Levite, religious people, people who should have known better. And, um, right. you know, that is just something that I want to say to the saints who have watched this whole thing go down. If this teaches us, if there's anything else we can learn from this whole situation with Brad Wilcox, it is our responsibility to say something when these kinds of things happen. Because if we don't, then they're just going to continue. That is how racism, that is how bigotry Mm -hmm. is perpetuated, is propagated, is when people, when witnesses to this harm do nothing. And I also love that other scripture that you quote often, Derek. Uh, You you quote uh, the common English translation of uh, Leviticus uh, 19.16, which says, don't stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. Um, that has become one of my favorite mm-hmm. one of my favorite scriptures in this conversation because it demands us that we act. It demands that we do something in the face of uh, you know of harm, of hatred, of oppression, of ignorance. It demands that we do something. Yeah, and I think um, that gets back to like as an I, I'm not going to speak for you, but but. I, I as an anti-racist work or anti-oppression um, uh, work of any kind, we're not expecting perfection from people. What we're expecting is accountability because we know you're going to make mistakes. Right. But the question is, what happens when that happens? Are you accountable? Can you fix it and move on? Then, then that's that's what we can ask. Just do your best, and uh, when you make mistakes, be accountable and and fix them, make reparations, and move on. Right. So we're not asking. Brad Wilcox or um, any of the leaders to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. There's people out here listening that have heard my Mm -hmm. mistakes. Fortunately, not everyone knows all my mistakes, but, uh, but yeah. And I do. Yeah. That is, uh, that is important to, to name is, is, uh, is, uh, what we're expecting from Wilcox. We're expecting accountability. uh, Better accountability. Right. Because I've said the wrong things. Um, not, not, um, I'm not saying I just misspoke, but I mean, there's times where I had the wrong, uh, opinion and the wrong idea. And I was, I thought I was doing the right thing, but then I'm like, nope, I was, uh, guilty of being 
um, formed by the racism that we're all swimming in. Uh, that I'm not that the so yeah more accountability, which is why I'm so sad that what he what Wilcox was was literally asking for was less accountability. Mm-hmm. He was asking people to do less theology. Of course, I'm going to be mad if you're asking people to do less theology. There's a time and a place to ask the question around why didn't the priesthood get restored until 1829. There's also a time and a place to ask the question around why did um, uh, discrimination against people of African descent res- respect with respect to the temple and, and priesthood, why did that exist until 1978? And you can talk about those questions in a larger context of, of like how does revelation happen and and what does it what does it mean to even have a prophet and what does it mean to trust prophets when they're not perfect and like you can have these theological questions and conversations but he was trying to dodge the issue and just get people to be complacent with the injustice in an attempt to get people to stay in the church mm-hmm. And that's not the way to get people to stay in the church. The way to get people to stay in the church, I think, is to be more vulnerable and say, hey, look, we're going to do some hard work, and we're going to do work you're going to be proud of, and that's going to that's gonna help you stay in the church. Like putting a Band-Aid over the problem and without healing the wound, uh, that's not going to help people stay in the church. It might temporarily delay some questions but these questions are going to be there under the band-aid the whole time unless you do the work to heal them and i'm i'm upset you know what i'm glad that he he kept his uh he kept the name of queer people out of his mouth during that time he didn't mention queer people oh boy that would have been a mess if he did right but he talked about women and girls and that needs to be named as problematic he didn't even try to apologize for that and also people of other faiths Oh yeah, people of other faiths, right? Um, uh, like, and and someone like what he says. See, I wish. See, he's not a theologian. He's an entertainer. People say, "Oh, look, isn't it great that we have scholars in the church?" He's not a scholar. He's an entertainer. He's an educator, but he is not a theologian. Oh, I thought he was a doctor. And people look up. <laughs> I thought he was a what? doctor. I saw people putting doctor in front of his name. Did I miss? Well, he probably has a doctorate in education okay. or something. Um, but he's, he's not a theologian. He doesn't think of these things critically and analytically the way I think about these things or the way that theologians are trained to think about these things. He's just trying to, uh, brush over the problem and paste over the difficulty and get people to not ask questions. I'm like, oh, that's not what we need to have a resilient and robust future generation of the church you're going to you're going to build in fragility once they realize your little curtain doesn't doesn't actually mask the problem it only will hold it back so far and same thing with the with what he said about about women and girls and why don't why don't girls have the priesthood now he's talking to young i think he's talking to young uh young men and young women here so he says, why why don't the girls have the priesthood? And he said he says, let me explain it to you. Like he totally literally mansplained it to them. He's a man who was explaining this to them. And he's like, let me tell it to you this way. Um, women and girls already come from the pre-mortal world with something that uh, men are trying to catch up to with the priesthood. So instead of asking, why don't 
women have the priesthood, you should we should ask why don't they need it or something like that. I don't have his exact words, but it was so problematic because, okay, fine, you're just exposing yourself as a hypocrite because if you really believed that, you would let women be prophets and apostles without ordination because they've already came with all the stuff they need. Men need ordination to be women. And, uh, uh, men need ordination to be prophets and apostles, but women do not need ordination to be uh, prophets and apostles. So we let them. That is not his position. His position is just a little bit of a technicality that he can use to cover up the gross injustice that we have against women in the church. Like for like, I bet okay he would not do well as a student at Union Theological Seminary with that attitude. Let me <laughs> just say, not, right? No. Like, what if that would be his like freshman paper? Um, I don't. They're probably not even called freshmen, but you know what I mean. His first semester paper, he's like, "Oops, let's just dodge the question." Like, he would not do well on his papers in divinity school. Like, it's so sad that a first semester student at at a divinity school will ask better questions than half of our church leaders. Maybe all of our church. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I uh, want to remind you guys that dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is dialogue heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history. More generally, the second is dialogue book report, which has discussion reviews and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction and memoirs. So you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the dialogue lecture series by subscribing on Apple podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. And you can um, find us on Facebook. That is correct. Also, want to give a, a special thanks to uh, the people who are, you know, working behind the scenes to make our uh, make our podcast more accessible and make it greater. Uh, special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, uh, Stephanie March and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media, um, and of course the two the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Galavanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, these outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from the same week, so you can have a, a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me uh, study guides. Uh, you, the link to the outlines is going to be in the mm -hmm. show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website, and the same goes for our transcripts. Um, the Anti-Racism 101 course is still out there. It's been doing very well. Um, thank you guys who have been... Uh, doing the ward pricing option to be able to buy the course for your whole ward. Uh, it's a very affordable for the ward. If you guys get your uh, if you if you guys get your ward to uh, purchase the course that way, everybody in the ward can have the course, can have personal access to the course. I'm still waiting. Like this project is still relatively young, but I'm still waiting for uh, feedback from the wards on how their uh, you know, how their study of the material is going, how people have been using the course in their ward. And I'm also trying to figure out uh, resources myself to be able to uh, make the make the course accessible on a uh, ward level, or I guess how to make it, 
like right now, the course has been made primarily for individuals to consume it, but I want to be able to provide additional resources to help wards discuss uh, the course together. So uh, I'm still working on that, and I'm still uh, waiting to receive feedback from the people who have uh, uh, taken the course on a ward level or on a larger organization uh-huh. level. So thank you guys who have done that. Uh, thank you guys who have already submitted feedback, uh, but just wanted to remind you guys that the course is still available. That'll also be available in the show notes and also the uh, prior Pricing for the wards um, is also available. I think it's one of the uh, best resources you can have for your ward in order to, uh, you know, to teach people in your congregation to be able to lead out and abandoning mm-hmm. attitudes and actions of prejudice. If I may toot my own horn, but uh, you know, Yay. <laughs> I'll just let y'all know that's still available. Is there anything else the people that we got to put the people onto, Brother Derek? No, I don't think so. Oh, if so, we can put it on social media. But uh, thank you guys for tuning in this week. Till we meet again next week. Okay, until we meet again next week. Bye-bye.